Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues. I'm your host, Jason Brooks, and I'm very excited to be joined by a guest co-host, Dr. Koi Thon. Dr. Thon, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. Perfect. And we have Dr. Thon here because we have a even more special uh, guest that we're interviewing today, Dr. Reg Hayde. Welcome, sir. Morning, guys. Great to be here. Awesome. So glad to have all of you all. Uh, as we know, IMAS is fast approaching, um, and uh, there is some significant history with IMAS and uh, Reg, as well as just the nurse, uh, neurosurgeons in general. But before we get into that, Reg, if you could tell us a little bit more about where you were born um, and how you got into deciding to be a doctor. Oh, gosh, I wasn't expecting that. Well, I'm a hick, I'm a, uh, hick from uh, Appalachia. Grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. My dad's boss uh, had a son who was at Columbia Med School. And he would, I was a kid in junior high, high school, and uh, he'd come back and tell me about med school. I always had a societal um, interest to, to give back. I like science. And it, so medicine just seemed like the perfect place to go. Perfect. Um, and so from there, you went to medical school and then decided to uh, choose orthopedics. Who were your mentors? Uh, sorry. <laughs> of course, my bias to ortho was there. <laughs> so you decided to go into neurosurgery. Uh, who were your mentors in neurosurgery uh, uh, in medical school that kind of showed you that this is a field that you wanted to pursue? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I went to med school to be a pediatrician and ended up becoming a neurosurgeon because it's hard, right? I wanted to uh, I, I like the brain. I was a philosophy theology major, and I wanted something that's technically challenging and physically challenging, emotionally, intellectually. And the guy there was a guy named Bob Nugent, who's now passed. And the residents were just cool dudes, and it seemed like a fun thing to do. I thought about orthopedic surgery. I later, after I completed neurosurgery, did an orthopedic spine fellowship for a year. So um, because at the time I was going to be a brain brain surgeon. And I found out that um, neurosurgeons didn't know a lot about spine at that point. They had a very limited knowledge. And so I had a person named Eric Jones, a pediatric orthopedist. Abbott Bird was another young uh, spine orthopedist. And they kind of took me under their wings. So I was a senior resident. I would go scrub the orthopedic spine cases while they were doing bouquet pedicle screws and learn to harvest bone grafts and things like that. That's really interesting. So, you know, just from a relational standpoint, did you find that there was uh, any opposition from any any of the orthopedic surgeons to kind of you slowly coming on to their turf or was it more collegial than you expected? Oh, no, there was opposition from both sides. <laughs> I was told by the chairman of neurosurgery, I wasted my career to go do a spine fellowship. Uh, Ron DeWalt, we're going to talk about it in a few minutes. First time I met him, he goes, son, neurosurgeons have no no business in the spine. Wow. So there, there was there was a mixed bag from both groups. And at that point, to be a young neurosurgeon doing spine, we were sort of the bastard stepchilds, right? We were not really accepted by either the old guard neurosurgical community nor the old guard orthopedic spine community. That's interesting. My how times have changed. <laughs> um, so, uh, of course, we had initially talked about IMAS um, and uh, I, I would uh, there is a history uh, with you and uh, the formation of the IMAS group. And uh, I'm going to just uh, 
transition over to Koi so he can kind of start asking you some of those questions. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. So, you know, our understanding is that you're um, the first neurosurgeon who was ever uh, involved with the IMAS meeting. And can you tell us more about the um, history of IMAS as well as, um, you know, your involvement? Sure. Well, it all goes back to pedicle screws, okay? Because in 1988, um, the SRS and NAS decided to give a hands-on pedicle screw course. Ron DeWald was the, was the um, president of NAS. Tom Whitecloud, God rest his soul, good friend of mine, was the chair of instrumentation. And Randy Betts, my friend, was in charge of education. So they did a pedicle screw course. So the first IMAS course, the first course was not IMAS. It just was a SRS NAS pedicle screw course. So what was happening is NAS and SS with uh, uh, Rundewald and Randy Betts and Tom were doing pedicle screw courses. I, in conjunction with the AANS, the, the Neurosurgical Association, and industry were also doing pedicle screw courses. So Danik, which became sophomore Danik, which became Medtronic, taught pedicle screw courses. I would co-direct that as a neurosurgeon with Steve Heim, orthopedist out of Chicago. So we were both on our merry ways teaching neurosurgeons how to do pedicle screws. Well, you guys may not realize this, but in 1993, pedicle screw litigation hit. And the FDA came out with a letter to industry saying pedicle screws were off-label. We could not teach them. Hmm. And that changed the industry completely. What then happened is NAS and SRS said, we'll go out of country. So the 93 letter from the FDA came out. Pedicle screw course is going to be moved out of country because the FDA doesn't regulate OUS. Well, um, NAS pulled out. They got scared. And so the SRS said, okay, fine. We will do a pedicle screw course in 1994. So the origin of the first SRS only course was in Munich in 1994. And that was underwritten by the SRS and the German Spine Society with Jurgen Harms helping out. But at that point, the brochure came out. So, okay, FDA, 1993, 94, we go to Munich. And I'm going to read, I've got a couple of notes here. The course was called American European Meeting on Pedicle Fixation of the Spine and Other Advanced Techniques. That was the first one, truly. Well, after that, um, Carolyn said that name is too long. And after the brochure was out, <laughs> she changed it to IMAST, International Meeting of Advanced Spine Techniques. And we had the acronym IMAST. And that's what changed that. That is so interesting. Just more so, I, I never thought that government regulation would have been the nidus uh, for the IMAST meeting. Uh, that's, that's not usually kind of a, uh, like a founding story that you normally hear, um, which is really interesting. Well, that's another lecture of a whole different time, but so there were Steffi. So I went to orthopedic spine to learn the Claudrelle Dubuset and pedicle screws. At that time, there was a Luke pedicle screws. There was a Wiltsey. There was the uh, Steffi. There wasn't, a, and then the Roy Roy Roy, Roy Kimmy and things like Edwards. So there were so Acromed settled for a hundred thousand. Ron Picker, the CEO of Mordanic, actually fought it, and without him fighting it we probably would not have won that battle. So I was actually deposed for two days, seven hours a day by the FDA. Mm. And we subsequently won and were able to do 
pedicle fixation and teach pedicle fixation. We could still do it at the time, but it was, quote, off-label. So thus began our understanding of on-label uses, off-label uses, things like that. The same, the same event occurred to a minor degree with posterior cervical lateral mass groups. That is so, so also in 1994, Lutz Biederman of Motec Biederman that worked with Harms gave a grant. So we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Well, what happened is Randy and I, Randy Betts and I were also teaching courses in Cancun and the South Americans and things like that about spine that we couldn't teach techniques in the United States. So Randy and I became friends. So Randy asked me about 99 or 2000 as a neurosurgeon and orthopedist to come on and be a course director. So it was about that time in, in night, I've got a couple notes in 1999, 2000 Barcelona Montreux that Randy was a chairman Larry Linky was was a, was a director. I was director. Dave Dave Pauly was a director, and then Marco Brida uh, Bruno was a director. And then it just kind of took off from there. So it's really interesting. I've got the notes here, and Randy and I've talked about this. The first the first uh, course was in Munich. The second pedicle screw course was in Bermuda. They had in Bermuda in '97. There were ten ten. SRS members, 43 non-members. That was it for surgeons. If you counted the personnel, the companies, everybody, there were 196. Wow. Right now, pre-pandemic, we're 1,000 to 1,200, right? And so by the time that, that I started helping in Barcelona in 2000, Bahamas, Montreux, by Montreux in 2002, we had about 500 people there. So the thing just, and it was mainly a way to get uh, surgeons and companies together, OUS, so we could teach things outside of the purview of the FDA. And then after that, by 2002, we actually had, out of 60 faculty, we had five neurosurgeons. So about that time, the SRS was trying, they, they were starting to understand that the neurosurgeons were here. So I was, as we talked about, I was one of the young Turks and there was a thing called a senior think tank and I was the first neurosurgeon. I was the token neurosurgeon, Jason. <laughs> so they had Ron DeWald, yeah. Courtney Brown, Bradford. Um, these people were at Dawson. They were all SRS presidents and they, they invited me in. Ron DeWald said, little boy, and I showed at that time, this was 30 years ago, titanium plates, lateral mass fixation, and screws into the occiput. Because I was a neurosurgeon, right? That's one of me to talk on. I started talking about titanium and six floor vanadium uh, alloys, commercially pure alloys, and stress shielding. And all of a sudden, Courtney Brown and Ed Dawson and, and Bradford and I, we became friends, played golf together. About that time in 91, I was offered a job at UCSF, and Bradford said, Reg, you know, we really don't work with, with, with neurosurgeons here, but maybe we'll start. I hired this young person, Serena Who. So the first time I heard Serena's name was in 91, interviewing at UCSF, because Bradford was, was breaking her on about this time. So as you mentioned earlier, the whole ortho-neuro thing kind of started to gel, kind of started to coalesce. 
Um, we weren't the ugly stepchildren in, anymore. And that relationship grew. That the SRS then said, huh, maybe we'll have neurosurgeons become members. So there were a bunch of old guys like me they reached out to and they said, if you apply, we will grandfather you in. So this, the spine section of the double NSCNS started inviting neurosurgeons. SRS started inviting neurosurgeons. Um, at the first spine cadaver courses in Bethesda, Maryland in the early 90s, we invited um, Andreas um, Weidner from, from, from Germany, Dieter Grove, people like this to come over and teach both ortho and neurosurgeons spine. So there was myself and Kevin Foley. We were in the neurosurgical military at that point. Uh, Dave Polly was in the neurosurgical military, Steve Andra. So a bunch of us young guys were actually teaching each other spinal instrumentation in Bethesda at a cadaveric lab. We became friends, drinking buddies, and the whole SRS IMAS relationship continued to grow. Out of that, it was very organic. It was not this planned deal. It's just that we saw ourselves as spine surgeons, first and foremost. And we were committed to make spine surgery writ large, um, a, a, a global phenomenon. And then IMAS just picked up momentum. The SRS picked up momentum. Industry picked up mo momentum. And it became, you know, from... Um, less than 200 people all total to more than 1200. So it's just been, I've been blessed. I caught the right wave and it started off with friendships. You know, Randy Betts and I were teaching and Tom Whitecloud and I would teach and he'd say, Red, show me how to do lateral mass fixation. And, and so it started off as ortho neuro friends teaching courses and teaching each other how to do this. Reg, it's so it's uh, uh, thanks for sharing that story. Um, it's so interesting that what started off as a uh, pedicle screw course in the you know early to mid nineteen nineties has you know uh, blossomed to to what it is today. Can you um, talk a little bit about um, how you see IMAS today um, to encourage uh, you know those who may not know to attend the meeting? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's evolving. It started off as a pedicle screw course in 88. So it's, it's been a long time. So now, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's ortho neuro. We try to do it globally like SRS. So we switch locations around the world and it's really to share techniques and, and nuances. Pardon me. It's not just to escape the FDA anymore. So <laughs> IMAX has always been a cutting edge place where a surgeon surgeon, right? Really technical surgeons can come and talk about who, how, why, how not to, when it messes up, how do you fix it? What's the cutting edge techniques? And it's just been a very intellectually interesting place because you have great thought leaders, great surgeons, and industry supports this because as we continue to develop new technologies, robotics, virtual reality, augmented reality, etc., so it's just a fun place to go. And a lot of us have become friends. You know, it's, it's, it's always in a, it's the social gathering after the meeting in the evenings during lunch is an important part because we're a community. And if the pandemic showed us nothing than that, 
It's that how as human beings, the, the community is important and the community in person. So I would urge all of you that can't to log on to these podcasts and to come to Dublin in person. If you can't make Dublin come the following years because the in-person meetings are so much better, so much better. I totally agree. I uh, uh, I have relished being able to shake hands with people um, and stop all these Zoom calls. And so that has certainly been pleasurable. I wanted to end with this final question. You know, I, I think IMAS as a whole started with innovation. And unfortunately, we had to leave the U.S. in order to kind of work on that innovation. Uh, you know, you've kind of seen the whole gamut from start to what it is now. Do you believe uh, that there is a location in the world where uh, where innovation is centered or has innovation as a whole in spine surgery changed? Um, you know, because I think that's the most interesting thing with all of the robotics at play now and technology. And there's so many new things coming on board. Um, is that uh, how do you see innovation in spine deformity surgery evolving from here on out? Um, and, and do we still have to kind of escape the U.S. to really make those big jumps? Because the yep. FDA still does exist. Yep. Great, great question. It's, it's spine writ large, not just spine deformity, right? Every spine surgeon is a deformity surgeon. You either make it or fix it. So it's really interesting, okay? Back in 86, 88, when I was in my fellowship time, Roy Camille was in Paris, right? So that he was he was promoting lateral mastication pedicle screws. Magrel, Grobe, Andreas Weidner in Davos and Germany. Uh, Luque in Mexico City. Zilke. So if you go back, um, the AO physicians, a lot of the stuff came out of Europe. A lot of the first instrumentation techniques came out of Europe for a variety of reasons. Fast forward to endoscopy. Endoscopy in Asia is amazing, right? So I would think a lot of our endoscopic techniques come out of Asia. A lot of the endoscopes come out of Germany. If you look at robotics, it's coming out of, out of the United States and Germany. So I think as we become a more global society um, and as orthoneural works together and as technology picks up, um, depending upon the, the kind of technique, I think it's more global now. And I think the FDA, it's not such a big deal. And the companies are learning how to work around that. If you go, for instance, to a company, Discogenics, which is not fusing, it's actually regenerating the disc. They started off as a company in Europe, went to Dublin, with the United States. Now they're pivotal and they're, and they're first level studies are in Japan and the United States. The FDA just gave a rapid clearance for this in our country. So I think the FDA has um, become more sophisticated. It's not quite as onerous. I think surgeons and industry partners have learned how to navigate this. There'll still be hot pockets throughout, throughout the world, but I think it's a much more global movement Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that you're the first neurosurgeon uh, is amazing, but more importantly, it's amazing to see so many more neurosurgeons uh, now involved with the SRS 
NIMAS. Um, and uh, and I, I can only imagine that our patients will benefit uh, from us coming together more as we treat patients with these challenging spine deformities. Um, thank you, uh, Koi, for being my guest host today. Thank you, Reg, for um, for giving us that amazing history, uh, so much to uh, think about as we look to the future. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning on to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues. More importantly, we hope you all listen to this and decide to register and attend IMAS in Dublin because it's going to be an amazing meeting. We look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Reg. Thank you, guys. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information. 